Church, I would ask you to please open up your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 6. 1 Corinthians, chapter 6. We're going to continue in our study of this amazing book. Last week, <clears throat> we went through verses 1 through 11, talking about lawsuits among believers, and kind of before that, Basically, what Paul is doing in the book of 1 Corinthians, he's written a letter to the Corinthian church, kind of addressing 10 major topics to the church. And some of the things he talks about, he's answering a prior letter that he received from them, answering some of their questions. We'll see that next week as we go into chapter 7. But to give you a brief recap, we're on the fourth topic out of 10. We've looked at unhealthy division in the church corrective church discipline, lawsuits among believers, and then today we're going to come to a topic, sexual immorality, starting in verse 12. Before we go into that, I want you to think momentarily, have you ever had something that was so valuable to you, but you wanted others to be able to use it, and so you willingly, of your own gracious will, you give it to someone to use, but you have like this hawk eye on what they're doing with this. Like, if they don't turn it on the right way, you step you're like, well, actually, you're supposed to, you really need to do it this way to turn it on. You back up. You know, you don't want anything to happen to it. Maybe you've loaned out a tool to someone, an expensive mower, perhaps. Or in the case of my children, I hear this frequently, where Kristen is in her room playing. Gabriel comes in. Can I play? Okay, yeah, sure. And so he'll go in, and then I hear Kristen, what? Well, Gabriel, you have to play with this one this way. You know, you have to play with this one this way. There's this protective ownership of something that we sometimes have because it's my thing, it's my stuff, and it's valuable to me. And the more valuable it is to me, the more careful I want to be of what other people do with it. That kind of serves our main idea this morning. This morning our main idea is this. We must use our bodies to live for God because they belong to God, not us, not ourselves. We must use our bodies to live for God because ultimately they don't belong to us. They belong to God. And that's what we're going to see this morning. So Paul has already addressed sexual immorality in the church in chapter 5. You'll see that there. But in that instance, he's really more addressing how the church is dealing with it once it's already present. He talks about church discipline. There should be repentance, and if there's no repentance, then there needs to be removal. Today, however, Paul will discuss sexual immorality a little more broadly, now looking a little bit closer as to the why behind it. Why do we do this? Why shouldn't we do this? Now, I'm going to go ahead and give you a warning this morning. Because our passage takes a closer look at sexual immorality, I will be elaborating on this subject. I'm going to try to utilize some euphemistic language when possible for the sake of our young ears, but I also want to say this. Our world is talking about these things in extremely unhealthy ways. It is impossible to escape the messaging of the world in this regard. And I believe that the church makes a great mistake by refusing to have a voice in this dialogue. I don't think avoidance is the answer. We need to publicly proclaim what God says about these things for the sake of our children 
who are growing up in the culture, and for the sake of honoring God at his word, which speaks of these things. So I'm going to try to be sensitive this morning to my vocabulary, but we will be addressing some of these things this morning. Hopefully you were there in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Let's stand together for the reading of God's word, starting in verse 12. Thus says the Lord, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, would you please take your word, speak truth into our hearts, Affect every ounce of our lives with it. We ask these things ultimately for your honor and glory, but also for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, church. You can be seated. So this passage comes right after two sections that speak about sexual immorality and making judgments in the church. Judgments concerning sin and conflict with different lawsuits that are going on. Not only that, but it follows a few verses, here verses 9 through 11, that mention various sins and how we've been saved from them. It says, such were some of you, in verse 11, but you were washed, sanctified, and justified in Jesus Christ. However, despite this glorious truth, sin is still, to borrow some terminology from Genesis, just crouching at the door, waiting to have us. And Paul sees where this has happened to the Corinthians. The specific sin that he sees here is sexual immorality. So he addresses it. And even more specifically, he references becoming one with a prostitute. Now, this was a very common cultural practice in Corinth at the time. It was very, very common for it to happen after a private banquet, almost as a recreational activity. There's some places where you can go and see these etchings, almost, of names of prostitutes and where they were going to be located. We also have records to show that their income was taxed. It was taxable income. And this practice extended even into the time when Christianity became the official religion. So it existed for at least a couple hundred years, probably more. It was a practice that's terribly wrong, but it was accepted at large by the culture. And therefore, the culture, understandably, had ways of justifying it and speaking about it. 
If you want a good modern analogy of this, consider the abortion debate. It is considered by many in our country a right that should be had by us. The right to abort an unborn child. And you'll hear sayings in defense of this position that show how widespread the concept is in our culture. Sayings like, well, women should have a right to make decisions for their body just like men do. Or sayings like, it's just a clump of cells. These sayings are intended to be short and sweet. It's not an elaborate defense. It's a short zinger that we can get out there real quick to make a point. A lot of times we try to take these, these complex ideas and cram it down into a tweetable reference so that I can send it out real quick, kind of get my likes and then make the rounds and then step back. And that's the extent of our argumentation. These arguments are like firecrackers. They're small and they're powerful and they're really attractive from a distance, but upon closer inspection, they fall short. This is what Paul is doing here. He's addressing these firecracker statements. Scholars disagree on whether these sayings are genuine, purely Corinthian sayings, or whether some of them are possibly sayings of Paul that have been distorted by the Corinthians. But either way, the point still stands. They're using it to defend this sexual immorality in their midst. Now, I'm going to reference three different sayings that will make sense in just a little while, why I say three. We see a couple here right off the bat, starting in verse 12. We see the first one. All things are lawful for me. That's the saying. Then Paul's response is, but not all things are helpful. Here it is again. He's repeating, all things are lawful for me. But then he responds again, but I will not be dominated by anything. So he's going to quote the saying and then give a counterpoint. And each of these counterpoints are intended to aid us in our fight for holiness. He applies it specifically to sexual immorality, but these are all general truths that apply to the entirety of the Christian life. So I'm going to speak about these things more broadly for us this morning. So the first rebuttal here, the Corinthians say, all things are lawful for me. Basically, I'm free in Christ to do these things. I'm not going to lose my salvation. It's not a big deal. Or if you want to try to interpret it differently, the point still remains. I'm not breaking any laws. It's all fine. This is accepted. Those statements may be true, but just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. And this is Paul's point here. There may be times when you're conflicted about something or something is debatable. It seems like it falls in a gray area. The best question to ask may not be, am I allowed to do this, but will this be helpful? Will it be helpful to myself or will it be helpful to others? I'm going to speak especially to our students this morning. I have been where you're at. The question you want to ask is, can I do this? Can I justify it? And we're trying to find these little loopholes, and that's the danger that Paul is warning about here. What this question does is it forces you to back up for just a moment and look beyond your personal desires in the moment. What chiefly matters in that moment is not just what I want, but what's going to be good for others and good for myself. 
Is it going to be helpful for others or is it going to be unhelpful? Is it going to be something that enslaves me and dominates me and takes control of my life? You may be allowed to do it, but if it threatens these things, it's not worth it. This leads to our first point this morning. Sin does not help others or us. It doesn't help ourselves. It doesn't help others. This is the deceptiveness of sin. It appears helpful, and it pretends that it's actually freedom, but in reality, it is neither. It's harmful to others, and it enslaves us. There are going to be many practices that our culture accepts that for whatever reason, we fail to identify with God's Word. We fall short in saying, well, here's how God's word speaks into this, so therefore I need to do this. It just seems like a gray area. Or maybe there's a spiritual blindness. I'll give you an example of this in the history, especially of our denomination. As Southern Baptists, the founding of our denomination happened because there were some some Baptist Christians who wanted to become missionaries. But there was a problem. They had slaves. And so there was this big divide within the church, and they were told, you can't be a missionary because you have slaves, and that's wrong. So these Christians said, well, we don't think this is wrong. We want to still be able to do this. So we had the forming of the Southern Baptist Convention. Now over time, praise the Lord, the Lord convicted the Southern Baptist Convention that slavery was wrong. But you know what I think about as I read back over the writings of some of these believers who own slaves. It's interesting to see how they justified what I think is so clearly a sin. To read their justification of it. Unfortunately, I can't go back into the past and talk to them and say, can you please just elaborate on this more? I I don't get to do that. But I would imagine some of them are probably genuine Christians that genuinely just did not see what was going on. We are in danger of this even today. We might easily recognize those errors, but there are things that we do today that maybe we don't quite so easily recognize, and we think that there's nothing at all, but in the future, a hundred years down the road, there's going to be a generation that looks back to us and say, why didn't they address this? Why didn't they respond to this according to God's word? Here are some simple questions that will help protect us from that. Is this helpful? Is it unhelpful? Is it controlling? If it is unhelpful or dominates your thoughts or your life, ditch it. It may be sinful. It may not be. It isn't worth whatever satisfaction or pleasure that you're receiving from it. Now, Paul obviously intends to address sexual immorality with these statements, and his next saying moves right to the point here in verse 13. So here's his second saying. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Now, the ESV puts the end quote here after stomach for food. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food, end quote. However, some translations do not put the end quote there. They move it further, and they include this phrase, and God will destroy both one and the other, and they put the end quote there. Here's the problem. 
The Bible translation that I have here is a translation. Jesus did not speak in English. These weren't recorded in English. These were recorded in Greek, in Hebrew, a little bit of Aramaic. So when we go back to the original letters that were written, language did not function the way our English language does. We have to translate something that we see in another language and say, okay, well, in English, what does that look like so that we can have access to God's Word? And in those original manuscripts, we don't see punctuation. We don't even see uppercase and lowercase letters. We don't see spaces between letters and words. It's literally just the letters going across the page. And the context of everything that's being written determines where we put some of these things. So we can't go back to the Greek and say, oh, there's the quotation mark, excellent. So we have to take our best guess as to where it falls. Good news is, no matter where this quotation mark falls, the meaning is going to stay the same. But I am inclined to believe those translations that make the saying longer. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other, I think, is the entire saying. And if that's true, they're basically saying this. What we are doing is part of God's design. It's enjoyable. Plus, the body's temporary. We're going to have new bodies one day, so what we do in this body is irrelevant because God's going to destroy it all anyway. That's their argument. That's their saying. Whenever it references food and stomach here, multiple commentators agree on this, that the word food is actually a euphemism for what we are talking about this morning. I'm going to leave it at that. That's their defense. God made me to enjoy this, so it's not wrong for me to enjoy this. God's going to destroy my body one day anyway. Paul clearly responds, no, the body is not made for sexual immorality. It is not meant for that, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. So there's his response. In the end, God will destroy, but he will raise up our bodies. Therefore, what we do with our bodies actually does matter. Point number two this morning, sin is idolatry. Sin is idolatry. Notice I didn't say idolatry is sin, though that's certainly true. Sin is idolatry. When we sin, we are subverting God's design, the natural order of things. Romans 1 says that we serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. There's a common line of thinking in our culture Back whenever I was younger, I know some people are like, you're still young. And some people are like, yeah, you're old. Okay, back in those days. This was used in defense of drugs, especially. The line of thinking says this. God made it. It feels good, so there's nothing wrong with it. If he didn't want me to enjoy it, he wouldn't have made it. That's how the argument goes. The devil is a liar. Our pleasure is not the highest aim of life. The highest aim of life is God's glory. We cannot live our lives as if the most important thing is my satisfaction. 
Why? Because that's not how we're designed. Now, a non-believing world will reject that because they reject the idea that we're even designed. But as Christians, we have to recognize we are designed to function a certain way. And sin has warped our desires so that we no longer perfectly desire everything God designed us to desire. It's warped. So now I desire things that are actually destructive to my design. We see this going on in our culture today. God did not ultimately make all things just because we would enjoy them. That puts me at the center of the universe. God ultimately made all things for himself, and it is primarily for his honor and glory. Philippians 3.19 describes those who walk as the enemies of, of the cross of Christ. Listen to the description. It says, Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Their God is their belly. Do you know what that means? What determines what they're going to do in any given moment is, what do I want to do? I'm really hungry for this. Have you ever gotten that craving, Stacy, when she was pregnant with the kids, especially Kristen? I don't think so with Gabriel, actually. I think it was just Kristen. It's odd how this works. Was Sonic's mozzarella cheese sticks every day. Hey, you off? Yeah, yeah, I'm off. Okay, you want to go by Sonic? <laughs> I guess. You want some more cheese sticks? I really would love to have some cheese sticks. That, that desire hit with that pregnancy, there's something about it that her body just said, you need this. And it wasn't an option. We were getting cheese sticks. <laughs> For those of you brothers who have had pregnant wives, you know what I'm talking about. You want pickles dipped in chocolate? Yes. Get it now. Yes, ma'am. Okay. You go and get whatever the craving is. So he's describing here in Philippians 3.19, those who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ, their end is destruction, and what determines what they're going to do is what they feel like doing. This is really what I want in the moment. Their God is their belly. That is idolatry. The reason that sin is idolatry is because it makes my felt desires, what I feel like doing, a higher authority than God's expressed desire. Does that make sense? So there's what I feel like doing, then there's what God commands for me to do. There's my emotions, and then there's the truth of God's word, and those are at odds. So when I sin, I'm committing idolatry. A simple way of putting it might be, what I want to do matters more than what God tells me to do in His Word. And this is a lie that our culture has bought into. You hear it in these phrases. Be true to yourself. Express yourself. Be You be you. Don't let anybody else tell you what to do. These statements are intended to groom our children to think that the ultimate aim in life has you at the center of the universe. You be what you want to be. Do you feel like you're this? Be it. And if everyone disagrees with you, go to another state and have surgery done. You'll be happy. But as we're finding out from these terrible terrible horror stories from people who go through this and come back years later and they say, what were these leaders doing when they allowed me to do this? 
They don't find satisfaction in this because they are breaking God's design. It's not meant to be satisfying. It provides pleasure for a season, but ultimately, these sayings from our culture don't restrict your behavior. Just let it happen. Give full vent to your desires. Let your instincts take over. It does not work. It's insanity. And the culture will eventually break down because of it. We see it happening in our culture today. How can a culture continue to grow that abandons the natural relationship of a man and a woman? Once a culture gets rid of that, guess what? It cannot procreate anymore. It will eat itself. It cannot survive. It's self-defeating. It's broken. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the antidote to our idolatry. God has died for us so that we might die to ourselves and follow him. What does that mean? It means that what I want isn't the highest priority anymore. I'm willing to do things that I actually don't want to do because God tells me in his word that's what I ought to do. He tells me that I'm going to be more satisfied by obedience than I am by giving in to my temporary desires in the moment. Now this is counter it runs contrary to the way that the culture views the situation. They can't imagine how you could possibly be satisfied by doing what you don't want to do instead of not doing what you want to do. How can that be satisfying? But what they don't understand is that the Christian life is not merely physical. We're indwelt with the Holy Spirit such that in our obedience, even in those moments where I don't deeply desire these things specifically, I desire obedience. And as I'm obedient to God's Word, the Holy Spirit gives me a satisfaction that's greater than what my flesh desires in that moment. How does all this happen? The Gospel of Jesus Christ. You cannot die to yourself in your own power. Before you come to Jesus, your God is your belly all the day long. It is. But once we come to Christ, he breaks that relationship, and now I am not enslaved to my belly anymore. No longer am I going to say, well, food's made for the stomach, and I'm hungry, so it's time to eat. We're not going to say that anymore. We are now free from that. That seeks to enslave us to our desires, kind of referencing back to verse 12. All things are lawful, but I will not be dominated. So through the gospel, we are called to crucify our old desires so that we might walk in newness of life. And God's tool of turning us from our desires is the word of God. God's Word reveals His design for creation, and then God's Spirit within us enables us to live according to that. That's how that works. So next, Paul points to the design of sexual morality, proper sexual expression, verses 15 through 17. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. 
The contrast of this verse is between becoming one with Christ versus becoming one with a prostitute. And I want you to look back at the verses and look at how he uses these words and phrases. Verse 15, members of Christ versus members of a prostitute. Verse 16, joined to a prostitute. Verse 17, joined to the Lord. Verse 16, becomes one body with her. Verse 17, becomes one spirit with him. So Paul is communicating here that sexual immorality is literally the opposite of the gospel. That's how we know it's wrong. And he communicates this by referencing the institution of marriage. He references Genesis 2.24. A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Marriage is the God-designed context for sexual morality. The only proper sexual expression exists in the confines of marriage, period. There is no other God-honoring context for it. I want to say that again very clearly. Marriage is the only proper context for this union. Now, the culture is going to tell you very different. The culture is going to lie to you and tell you that you're missing out on something. It's a lie. The ultimate satisfaction for this is within the confines of marriage. Hollywood and our culture has been fighting for decades to make a case for casual union as though it's simply part of the dating process or an acceptable leisure activity, but it's not. Hollywood is lying to you. It is not casual. It is not acceptable as a leisure activity. Schools around our country pass out protective products for our students, signaling that the battle has essentially already been lost. They've abandoned abstinence. Instead of no union, the message is they're going to do it, so let's just help them to do it safely. It is never safe outside the context of marriage. The devil is a liar. Do you understand? He's a liar. We have to protect our children from these things. We have to protect ourselves from these patterns of thinking. As the rest of the world treats it so casually, we have to fight against that. We have to remind ourselves that God has established marriage as a sacred union that does not need to be messed with, especially just because you've got an itch that needs to be scratched. Your God is not your belly. The Lord is your God, and you belong to Him. When you come together with someone, the Bible says that you have become one flesh. You are one with that person. So the implication is you are no longer available for anyone else, only your spouse. So considering this imagery, sin is likened to spiritual adultery. That's our third point this morning. Sin is spiritual adultery. We are one with God, but then we get an itch 
and we just need to go out and have a fling. And I don't just mean that in the context of sexual immorality, though it's certainly true there. I mean it about sin in general. I desire to do something. I have an itch for it, so I'm going to go out and do it. We ignore the fact that we are one with Christ. The verse says that we are one spirit with Him. That phrase itself I really could give an entire sermon about, but whatever it means, it certainly means nothing less than being committed to Christ alone for life. So then the implicit question is, why are you using your body to sin? You are now one with God. Turn from sin. And that's where we see it go next in verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You were not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. I'm going to apply this to sin generally, but I want this phrase to ring loud and clear this morning, especially for our students. Flee from sexual immorality. Flee from it. Do not flirt with the idea. Don't dwell on it. Don't wish about it. Don't contemplate it. Flee from it. Run. Run. There are some adults in here that need to hear this. Flee from sexual immorality. If you were looking at things you ought not to be looking at, stop. Flee. You think, well, Garrett, I'm not strong enough to do this. You're right. You're not strong enough to do it. I can speak personally to this. You're not. The key to success is in not fighting this in your own power. I can speak to this as well. God will give you the strength to overcome any temptation that comes your way. You have the strength within you. And it is not your own strength, it is His strength. So the degree to which you include the Lord and ask for His aid in your obedience, that is the degree to which you will see success in that fight. The less that you call upon the Lord, the less you will see success. The more that you call upon the Lord, the more that you will see success. Flee from sexual immorality. And now, apply generally for all sin. Flee from it. Right after this phrase, this is what I believe personally to be the third Corinthian saying. Some other commentators confirm this also. In most of your Bibles, there's probably going to be a footnote where it says in verse 18, flee from sexual immorality, every other sin a person commits, there's probably a footnote there. In the ESV, it's number four. If you go down to the bottom, it tells you right here. You don't have to know Greek, it tells you. It says, or every sin. So the Greek phrase there can be interpreted both ways depending on the context. And they're being honest and saying, we think it's every other sin. Some of us believe it's every sin. So there's not a single translator that works on this. It's a group of translators, and they don't always agree entirely on every translation decision. In the Greek, the word other is actually absent. So interpreted literally, word for word, it would be every sin. Though because of the way Greek grammar works, 
other could fit in that slot. It's hard to say. If the word other is not there, then here's what it would read. Every sin a person commits is outside the body. That would be the Corinthian saying. Then Paul's response would be, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. What he's saying is, you say every sin a person commits is outside the body. Sin is a spiritual thing. There was this common idea, the separation of the physical and the spiritual. And then the physical is bad, but the spiritual is good. So then sin is a spiritual issue having no bearing on the physical. So I can, I can abuse physical things because they're evil anyway. Sin is outside the body. So it doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't affect my body would be the argument. Here's Paul's response. Sin has everything to do with your body. To prove his point, he continues. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit whom God has purchased for himself. You are not your own anymore. You don't belong to yourself anymore. In the same way that my wife does not belong to herself anymore and I don't belong to myself anymore. We are now one of another. And that ties into Paul's imagery here. You are united with Christ. Your desires are not your ultimate influence anymore. You belong to God. So unite yourself with Him in the things that you do. Here's our final point this morning, number four. Sin doesn't belong among Christians because we are God's temple. Sin doesn't belong among Christians because we are God's temple. This is true of the church in general. The church is now the temple, not the building, but the people. Big C Church is the temple. But it's also true of each individual Christian. We are each individually a temple of the Holy Spirit who is dwelling within us. God has purchased you, and you don't belong to yourself anymore. You belong to God. What this tells us is God cares about your body. The flesh and bone that you were inhabiting, he cares about that. And he cares about what you do with your body. This goes for sexual immorality. This goes for surgeries that we have, including sexual reassignment surgeries, but not limited to these surgeries. There are other ways that we alter our bodies that are displeasing to God. This goes for what we eat and how much we eat or how much we don't eat or what we do with the food that we eat. This goes for our hygiene, our level of sleep, our physical fitness. This goes for abuse. Now, church, I'm going to be the first to admit here, it is easy for me to think my body is temporary. I'm going to get a new one one day. It doesn't matter. And you know what I use that to do? to justify my own sinful neglect or lack of concern for my body. 
in that moment I have forgotten. I don't belong to myself anymore. I don't get to say what I do with my body. God does. I don't own this. It's a loner. God owns it. And the better we take care of our bodies, the longer we're going to be able to live for God in it and through it. So this is just a reminder for us that holiness is holistic. That is, it involves our entire selves. It encompasses our entire being. So in light of all of these things this morning, church, let us flee from sin. Let us not elevate my personal desire over the instruction of God's Word. Let us take care of our bodies and use our bodies to live for God, to help others, and to flee from the spiritual adultery, the idolatry, the, de- the domination of sin, no matter what our culture says or does about it. Let's pray. Lord God, we want to honor and please you in our bodies, the things that we choose to engage in, the things that we refrain from engaging in. We want to stand apart from the culture, not just for the sake of standing apart, but for the sake sake of standing upon your truth. We confess to you, Lord, that we are sometimes blind. We are blinded by the culture by cultural sayings or ideas that we've become jaded. We are no longer able to feel the sting of these things as we ought. Lord, would you help us to see through these lies, to embrace a sexual ethic that your word commends to us, to flee from anything that is contrary to it. Lord, we know that you treat these things seriously. And we ask you to help us treat these things seriously while we are still at home in this body. Protect us until that day when we will be raised up with you to receive our new bodies. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.